Well, this is something we should politicize. Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, which continues to reel today from Thursday's shooting. Mass shooting. Horrible shooting. Our best goes out to those folks up at KYAQ. Also, 93.93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today, tonight, whenever you might be tuning in, and from wherever you are listening. Muslims are the new Catholics. In case you hadn't heard, I will explain shortly uh, in my conversation with Ben Railton. Uh, he writes that today's anti-Muslim sentiment is yesterday's fear of Catholics. And that's actually good news, as, uh, as I look forward to discussing with the historian and associate professor of English and American Studies at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts very shortly. Coming up also uh, later on this program is our latest Green News Report with Desi Doyen, who will be here. She's here now, of course. Hi, Des. How are you? Hello. Good I'm to see doing you. okay. And uh, you will be back with us. And you know whenever the Green News Report is like the best news we have to cover. Aye. <laughs> you, you know, it's just that kind of a show. Although yeah. we do have some surprisingly uh, good news in the Green News Report. Uh, aside from making fun of Jeb Bush and what he did lately, yeah. uh, we got some uh, good news. This is very good some news out of Alberta, Canada. Oh, yes. Of all places. The tar sand, the home of the tar sands. And their premier is saying, you know what? Uh, not so much on those tar sands. It's time to get rid of that uh, crap. We don't need that oil. It's time to stop relying on it. That's up in Alberta, Canada. I know. It's pretty remarkable. It's amazing. Um, so that's ahead. Also, new uh, pollution standards. I, I'll call that good news. And uh, <laughs> Yes, definitely. Uh, and Elon Musk and the Model X, which is very good news, I would say. Very cool. Very cool news, for sure. And by the way... We have been so nice to Elon Musk over uh, I don't know how many years on this program and on the Green News Report, and yet we still have not received our free Tesla in exchange. I know. What That's is all up I'm with saying. that? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> not that it was a quid pro quo, but that, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we could use the Tesla. We've given you good press, Elon. That's all I can say. Just saying. That's all we're saying. Um, 
Because, you know, we don't do we because we have no uh, corporate sponsors like Elon Musk, like the oil companies. So, frankly, we can say anything we damn well please. We rely uh, on. Uh, well, frankly, we rely on you people to help us stay independent. And uh, and thanks to those who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us do exactly that. Um, but that doesn't keep us from saying nice things about uh, Tesla and uh, waiting for one to be delivered. Doesn't hurt to try. Yeah, we're still trying. Anyway, uh, on to the less happy news. Uh, L-O-L-G-O-P over on the Twitters, who we love, uh, says... Uh, quote, 31 cases of voter impersonation, 31 cases of voter impersonation since the year 2000. 10,000 gun deaths in America this year alone. Guess which problem the GOP is trying to fix, says L-O-L-G-O-P. Good point. Good point, particularly as we come out of another mass shooting, uh, this time in Oregon. Absolutely horrible, horrible. The uh, sheriff of Douglas County, Oregon, a man by the name of John Hanlon, and remember his name because I'm going to talk about him a little bit more in a second, but in any event, uh, late on Friday, he named the nine victims of Thursday's shooting at Umqua Community College. They range in age from uh, 19 to 67. Lucera Alcarez, 19. Quinn Glenn Cooper, 18. Kim Saltmarch Dietz, 59 years old. Lucas Ebel, or Ebel, 18 years old. Jason Dale Johnson, 33. Lawrence Levine, 67. He was the teacher there who was shot, one of the teachers. Serena Dawn Moore, 44. Trevin Taylor Unspock, 20. And Rebecca Ann Carnes, who was 18 years old, the gunman, who was 26 years old, was also uh, killed. Although I'm happy to say, happy to see this, uh, CNN does not mention, does not give the name of the gunman here. And I'm happy to see that because, you know, we have avoided uh, for years uh, trying to give uh, fame and fortune to these uh, to these mass shooters who are out to seek fame and fortune. We try to not point them out. We try to not name them when we can. Sometimes we have to, uh, or it is appropriate as a, a news organization to do so. But other times it is not appropriate. It's better that they, you know, just ignore them, move on. We don't need to talk about who they are, why they did what they did. Um. Because in this uh, case, uh, the gunman actually is said to have identified with recent perpetrators of other mass shootings. So, you know, for years, for decades, uh, I've been talking about this and how, uh, you know, the mainstream corporate media tends to make these people famous. I remember when they put the faces of uh, the, the Columbine uh, uh, murderers on the cover of Newsweek, whatever it was, cover of Time, cover of Newsweek. It's obscene. Stop it. Mainstream corporate media. Maybe this is a good sign that CNN has, has for the moment, learned a lesson. In any case, investigators found some 13 firearms connected to this guy who, who killed nine people in all at Oregon's Umqua Community College. Six weapons were found at the school. Uh, another five, uh, let's see, uh, that was five pistols and one rifle at the school. Two pistols and four rifles were found at his residence. So a um, total of 13 firearms. Why does anyone need 13 firearms? That is unclear to me. 
for sport, for protecting your family. You really? Really? You need 13, do you? Uh, President Obama, as we were going off air yesterday, President Obama was coming out to make his 15th statement addressing gun violence. 15 times he's had to do this in his seven years. Uh, He said that we spend over a trillion dollars on preventing terrorism in this country, yet we have a Congress that prevents us from even collecting data on how to reduce gun deaths. We spoke about uh, we spoke about that issue. We've spoken about it many times, but we spoke specifically with David Hemingway of Harvard School of Public Health about guns as a, a public health issue, as a public health epidemic in this country. If you know, if if that many people died from anything else in this country, we would be all over it. But it's guns, so no, we can't touch it. President Obama pointed that out uh, yesterday when he sort of alluded to, uh, well, what we were talking about, uh, you know, that guns are an issue of public health and ought to be dealt with on that level. He sort of alluded to uh, to that same thing in some of his remarks on Thursday. When Americans are killed in mine disasters, we work to make mines safer. When Americans are killed in floods and hurricanes, we make communities safer. When roads are unsafe... We fix them to reduce auto fatalities. We have seatbelt laws because we know it saves lives. So the notion that gun violence is somehow different, that our freedom and our Constitution prohibits any modest regulation, of how we use a deadly weapon when there are law-abiding gun owners all across the country who could hunt and protect their families and do everything they do under such regulations. Doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And yet, uh, the NRA, the terrorist-supporting NRA, yes, terrorist-supporting NRA, uh, has kept uh, our our, uh, our politicians from being able to take action on this uh, in almost every regard, despite the epidemic, the health epidemic that we have in this country, for, thanks to gun violence. The president also asked the media to report on the difference in numbers between Americans killed by terrorism versus by gun violence over the past decade. And uh, a bunch of them did that. Uh, one of them, I think, was over at Vox, uh, cited uh, Adrian Benepe, uh, cited it over on Twitter. He said the number of Americans killed in U.S. by terrorism since 9-11 is zero. The number of Americans killed by gun violence since 9-11 is, uh, by gun violence since 9-11 is 150,000. Our friend Eric Bullert from Media Matters came out and said, well, no, no, you left out gun suicides. The number of Americans killed by terror by terror since 9-11 is zero, whereas the number killed by guns since 9-11 is actually 420,000. Can you imagine if 420,000 American citizens were killed by uh, <laughs> by Islamic terrorism? 
Jesus, I, we act as if 420,000 have been killed by Islamic terrorism, the amount of money that we spend, the amount of uh, blood that we are willing to spill in foreign countries to stop it. Now, I don't know if that number is exactly right. Zero since uh, uh, killed by, in U.S. by terrorism. There were the anthrax attacks, and it depends how you look at uh, uh, the Fort Hood shootings and certainly domestic terrorism, which I regard uh, the Charleston shootings to be. But certainly nothing like the number that is killed by just out-and-out gun violence in this country. And yet it seems we can do nothing about it. Thanks to the NRA and the politicians that are in thrall to them. Yesterday on this program, uh, as we talked about uh, the, the incident, as it was still breaking at the time, I said, yeah, there is something that we can do about this. We can vote those people out. Just vote them out. Just vote them out. Take the time to show up on Election Day and vote those people out. And by the way, if you uh, favor, you know, if you want fewer gun safety regulations, if you want uh, more guns in America, fine, go and vote them in. I suspect if everyone went out and voted on either side of the issue, every single one of those people who are against even the lowest hanging fruit of background checks for all Americans, the lowest hanging fruit, uh, which is favored by Republicans, Democrats, it's favored by members of the NRA, if not the NRA themselves. If everyone showed up to vote their minds on that, those people would be thrown out of office, those people who are blocking common sense gun regulations. The president, I was happy to see, spoke exactly about that, spoke about uh, guns uh, and, and gun violence and gun safety being politicized in this country. He seemed to echo what we were saying. Yes, it should be politicized. What's also routine is that somebody somewhere will comment and say, Obama politicized this issue. Well, this is something we should politicize. It is relevant to our common life together, to the body politic. We have a Congress that explicitly blocks us from even collecting data on how we could potentially reduce gun deaths. How can that be? This is a political choice that we make to allow this to happen every few months in America. We collectively are answerable to those families who lose their loved ones because of our inaction. I'd ask the American people to think about how they can get our government to change these laws and to save lives and to let young people grow up. And that will require a change of politics on this issue. And it will require that the American people individually, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, when you decide to vote for somebody, are making a determination as to whether this cause of continuing death for innocent people should be a relevant factor in your decision. If you think this is a problem, then you should expect your elected officials to reflect your views. That was President Obama speaking on Thursday, a visibly angry President Obama speaking uh, for the 15th time about gun violence uh, during his tenure as president. So, yeah, 
uh, elections matter, voting matters, uh, the position of these politicians matter. Now, remember at the top of the show, I had mentioned uh, Douglas County, Oregon Sheriff John Hanlon. Um, he has been uh, he announced the uh, the names of, of those who were killed in this uh, in this killing at uh, at Umqua Community College. He is against doing anything about gun violence. He is against uh, changing any laws uh, when it comes to gun violence. He is against uh, background checks for all gun sales. He testified against that when the state of Oregon, while he's down there now trying to deal with this massacre, and I'm sure doing a very good job, it should be remembered that he testified against Oregon improving its law for for background checks for all gun sales uh, not long ago. I think this was back uh, just in, um, this was earlier this year. This was in April. He urged Oregon legislators to reject SB 941, a bill that would expand background checks to gun sales and gun transfers to others. Here's what he had to say in his testimony just in April. I've been the sheriff now for uh, seven years. During that time, I can tell you that um, this law is not going to protect citizens of Oregon in that it is going to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. It will not do that. I don't know how I can, at least in my county, begin to try to enforce this law. Um, um, our budget is, con- is continuously shrinking to the point that there are times when we have a difficult time simply responding to domestic disturbances, vehicle crashes, the ordinary calls for service that happen every day. Um, and to expect local law enforcement to run down and, and and do an investigation um, into whether or not an individual, a private individual, has conducted a background check is is nearly impossible. Um, uh, I I urge you to consider this bill closely and and to not pass it. It it simply isn't going to work for us. So that was his testimony. I think that was the sum entirety of his testimony. A minute. He drove all the way up to the state capitol to testify against that law to have improved gun safety regulations because, oh, we just don't have time. We just don't have time. I wonder if he wishes he had time now because now he's got he's spending a whole lot of time dealing with this massacre that he has on his hands. That was a sheriff, Douglas County, Oregon, Sheriff John Hanlon, who is in his second elected term, by the way, as sheriff. He's a 26-year veteran of the fourth force. He's in his second term as sheriff. He was uh, asked on CNN this morning if he regrets uh, his position, his earlier position on improving gun safety laws. And again, the lowest hanging fruit. Background checks for all purchases and transfers of guns. Here was uh, Sheriff Hanlon on CNN uh, this morning with Chris Cuomo. Well, respectfully, Chris, I'm just not going to get involved in the gun debate at this point. All right, look, why am I pushing you on this, Sheriff? It's not because I don't want to, dis- I want to, don't want to respect the victims. It's because you've weighed in on it in the past. And I want to know if your perspective is different now that you're knee-deep in one of these situations than just being someone who's seeing it from abroad. Okay, well, my position on it has not changed. So you still believe that it's not about gun laws, it's not about uniform background checks, none of those things would help, sir? 
Again, I want to stay focused on this investigation and the welfare of the community and the welfare of the, the families and the victims in this horrific th uh, incident. And, and I'm not going to waste the time today or any time in the real near future having the firearm debate. So he doesn't want to waste that time. Not today, not any time in the future. He doesn't want to waste the time on such debates. Well, that's funny because at the very beginning of his testimony in April of this year, Sheriff John Hanlon seemed to have plenty of time to waste on the debate. Here's what he said at the very top of his, of his testimony. Uh, I apologize for not having a prepared statement. I found out about three hours ago I was going to make the trip up here, and it takes a little over two hours to get here. Hmm. Isn't that funny? He was able to make a two-hour trip up to testify against gun safety uh, improvements. Two hours he was willing to take to show up to say, no, we don't want to uh, increase the laws in any way, shape, or form to make uh, our citizens safer. He had plenty of time then, didn't he? Two hours he had to drive, but he can't respond to Chris Cuomo about this. He doesn't want to talk about this debate now. Now that he's knee deep in blood in his own county. Thanks to gun violence in this country. Thanks to the debate that he was more than happy to ring in on. And by the way, he sent a letter in 2013 to Vice President Joe Biden right after the Sandy Hook uh, massacre. Sheriff John Hanlon sent a, a letter to Biden uh, saying, uh, don't do it. Don't make it. Gun control is not the answer to preventing heinous crimes like school shootings. Hanlon said in his letter, any actions against or in disregard for our U.S. Constitution and Second Amendment rights by the current administration would be irresponsible and an indisputable insult to the American people. And I agree, by the way. We shouldn't show disregard for the Constitution or the Second Amendment, but it is not up to Sheriff John Hanlon or me or you to interpret that Constitution. And it's not up to anyone to forget the uh, well-regulated part of that Second Amendment. So, um, yeah, uh, elections matter. And uh, if these people are going to be voted out of office, might I suggest we, we start with uh, Sheriff uh, John Hanlon of Douglas County, Oregon. Voting matters. Keep that in mind. And yes, it is time to politicize this issue. It has been politicized long ago. All right. A quick break. And we are going to come back uh, and uh, and cheer me up somehow by comparing Catholics to Muslims. I don't know how that's going to happen. We'll find out after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Come on, people now. 
All we ask is that you try. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, boy, what a what a week or two it has been, uh, particularly on the heels of Pope Francis's visit to this country, and everybody. Everybody, it seems, was just loving it, was loving him. Now, that's uh, that got sullied a bit, I think, at the end, once uh, this uh, nonsense about meeting with Kim Davis uh, came out, the, the Kentucky county clerk who refuses to marry anybody because she has to marry everybody. But aside from that, there was just this outpouring, this outpouring of love for Pope Francis. Everybody seemed to love him. Nobody seemed to fear him. But that was not always the case in this country. And I'm, I'm going somewhere specific with this here because uh, I, I read an article over at TPM Cafe that actually made me feel a little bit better about uh, about this country, or at least uh, it gave me some confidence for the future of this country. Because you have, in one sense, this outpouring of love for Pope Francis and uh, the Catholic Church at this time. And then at the very same time, you've got this amazing, stupid, ridiculous fear of Muslims that you see in guys like Ben Carson, uh, that you see in this uh, nonsense about Ahmed Mohammed uh, down in Irving, Texas, the, the guy who uh, brought in this clock to school and made everybody yell bomb. Writing about all of this and putting me somewhat at ease was uh, Ben Railton over at, uh, as I said, over at Talking Points Memo Cafe. He writes, anti-Muslim sentiments and paranoid fears about Sharia law are still taking center stage in our political and social debates. GOP presidential candidate Ben Carson's concerns about the possibility of a Muslim gaining the presidency and his insistence that such a candidate would need to renounce Islam before taking office are, uh, nation as nationally syndicated uh, columnist Cal Thomas writes, quote, caution, not bigotry. Yeah, I think it's bigotry. The mayor of Irving, Texas, home to 14-year-old Ahmed Mohammed, argues that her anti-Sharia and anti-Muslim sentiments are, quote, exactly what the American public is thinking. Oh, yes, we are all afraid of Ahmed and his clock. And judging by so many stories recently, including one in The New York Times describing fears of a Muslim takeover of South Carolina in response to the idea of Syrian refugees coming to the U.S., there are indeed many Americans who share these concerns. Yet, writes Ben Ralton, at the same time, these anti-Muslim narratives, these paranoid fears and conspiracy theories about Muslim immigrants and communities and Sharia law echo quite closely Another American history, centuries of anti-Catholic sentiment in the U.S. And remembering and engaging with those histories in a moment when national attitudes towards Catholics have so obviously shifted offers a telling glimpse into how our anti-Muslim narratives might look to future historians. I'm really hoping uh, Ben Railton is right about that, but I'm not so sure. Let's find out if he can convince me. Uh, Benjamin Railton, Ph.D., is associate, pro associate professor of English and American Studies at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. He's the author of three books on American literature, history, culture, and collective memories and identities. He also maintains the daily American Studier blog, 
as well as contributing to websites such as Talking Points Memo, The Conversation, and We're History. He joins us now from uh, what may be a very soggy Massachusetts at this point. Ben Railton, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, you run a great program, and I'm, I'm really excited to be part of it. Uh, you're very kind to say that, sir. All right. And, of course, I'm glad you said it before I put you on the grill for your uh, for your opinions here. All right. Uh, to begin with, uh, l- let's let's talk about these anti-Catholic fears. For those of us uh, who were born after uh, uh, J- uh, JFK, John F. Kennedy became president. Uh, t- talk to me a little bit about the the fears in this country of of Catholics, because it just seems amazing to me this fear of a of a Catholic takeover, takeover by the Vatican of this country, if a guy like JFK became president. But but this is all very real. Uh, tell me a little bit about this history. Yeah, I mean, and, and that moment, nineteen sixty, is really a high watermark of it in a lot of ways, or a culmination of it. It it often can seem like something 19th century, something really distant. Phrases like papists and and those very those, those much more archaic ideas. But as as recently as as half a century ago, there was a pretty sustained debate in our mainstream political media, body politics, from multiple organizations of the genuine concern on behalf of many of those entities that any Catholic, including John F. Kennedy, the candidate for president, would, would owe a first allegiance not to anything within the United States, not to America, not to the American government or the American people, but to that entity, to that foreign, scary place and entity that was the Vatican and the Pope and the Catholic Church. And there really was quite a bit of debate, um, again, on, on every level of our political and social conversations in 1960 about that question, could Kennedy be trusted to answer to America, answer to the American people, or would he always first be a Catholic, first be answering to this foreign body? And so, and that was, as I argue in the piece, the culmination of centuries of such attitudes, but was just as strong, I think, in 1960 as it had ever been. It was just as much a part of these debates in a serious way and in a widespread way in 1960. So that recently, it was very much a question of whether we could trust Catholic Americans to be a part of our rather than owe this into a different one. And, and was there, as as we sort of heard from Ben Carson uh, recently, a uh, Republican, almost the leading Republican candidate, I guess he's now in, in second place in, in most polls behind Donald Trump, you know, calling for any such candidate who, who, who would be Muslim and who, who would want to become president, that they must first, quote unquote, renounce Islam. Were there similar calls uh, to President Kennedy, I guess uh, to candidate Kennedy uh, before he became president, that he must renounce the Catholic Church? Exactly how did that uh, how did that play out, uh, you know, in the campaign and in the years leading up to his presidency? There were. There definitely were um, from political parties, from churches, evangelical churches, from newspapers. There were explicit uh, statements that such pledges would be needed, that Kennedy would need to pledge his allegiance anew, as if he were not already a part of our society and body politic, to, to sort of doubly pledge his allegiance to America rather than to the Vatican or the Catholic Church. And he even did, as, as I guess any candidate does, have to respond to even the more outrageous perspectives. He, he responded and, and made the case, his campaign overtly made the case that that when it came to political decisions, when it came to national policy, he would be uh, 
thinking of America, not thinking of this foreign uh, perspective that was being defined and feared. And uh, he told his audience um, in a 1960 uh, speech, for example, September 1960 speech, mm -hmm. that, it, that in America, where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be a Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote. We know that the latter is not always true, but he was making the case for the former overtly that a Catholic, a cardinal, or prelate, or the Pope would never tell the president how to make policy, and he felt the need to to state that. So he did, in a way, even offer up such mm -hmm. a pledge of allegiance in response to those fears. So they were certainly there, and, and he engaged them, as I guess he had to, in order to to be a part of that campaign. Yeah, he, he was sort of forced to do that, and uh, I guess that also parallels what we saw with Barack Obama before he became president. He sort of had to come out and make a similar speech, a similar uh, Kennedy-esque speech about his own background and uh, uh, the, the, the black uh, liberation church that he had spent so much time in all of those years, and he sort of had to put that to rest. Um, but I, 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 I'm wondering how analogous this all is, and the current fear of Muslims, which, of course, I think is absolutely ridiculous and absurd, and you cited the story of Ahmed Mohammed, um, and, and that just, frankly, idiocy. But I wonder still how, how analogous it is. I mean, at the time that this nation feared Catholicism, feared a, uh, a proxy takeover of the nation by the, by the Pope via a president, um, you know, you, you didn't have an extreme, at least to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ben Relton, but uh, you didn't have an extreme uh, fringe element of the Catholic uh, religion actually at war with a number of countries. And we do have that in, uh, in Islam, well, you know, with radical Islam in a number of countries causing extraordinary violence. Uh, now, of course, Catholic Church was involved in its own share of violence over the years. But is it is it exactly analogous? In other words, isn't there a an actual real justified fear that some people may have of Muslims of, of Islam that wasn't really justified when it came to Catholicism? I certainly think any historical comparison, any, any use of history for analysis of the present needs to be able to be nuanced about both things, the present, and to be specific to them and to not try to act as if they ever are, are one-to-one -one equivalents. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And, and I certainly, in the piece, tried briefly to at least to acknowledge those, those differences and, and aspects of our specific moment. So I, so I agree with that, and I don't think that it's either or. I certainly don't think that we should try to pretend, again, that there's an equivalence that is absolute or that we can ignore present realities and situations. But on the other hand, I would say a couple things. One thing I would say is many of the fears, to my mind, that are directed at Muslim Americans and Muslim communities are directed at the idea of these communities and their, their customs and their beliefs themselves representing an internal threat, a threat that is present here in the U.S., um, which, to my mind, is a different argument from saying, you know, fighters for ISIS on the ground in Iraq are, you know, at war with with the entities around them and with, with other nations that are present there. Mm -hmm. And so I do connect that to, for example, in the piece I talk about this book written by Harry Beecher Stowe's father, Lyman Beecher, where he argued that Jesuit priests in the west of the uh, continent at the time who were practicing their Jesuit religion were, in fact, creating Catholic strongholds 
that were aimed to take over the country and to make Catholicism the law of the land. A, a papist, um, a papist takeover, as they call exactly, it. Exactly, yes. exactly. And I see that very much like the fears of uh, you know building mosques in places like Tennessee or of building a Muslim cultural center in New York City. The fears that somehow the act of doing that is is not simply a group of people, a community. Um, embodying parts of their customs and their beliefs and their communal identity, but represents a threat in and, in and of itself, just the existence of these communal practices or these communal spaces. or mm-hmm. um, you know, And so I think that would be an example where, where that part of this particular set of imperatives are not, to my mind, directed at, at radical terrorists or radical fighters in mm-hmm. a foreign country. They're directed at an American community, and the idea that that community practicing its identity is itself threat, is itself doing something that constitutes an internal danger to us. Um, and so I think we can think both. I think, you know, we are able to to see actual threats and external threats and engage with them in, in the ways we should, and also recognize, on the other hand, that we have this wide variety of communities here, as we always have, and that they are all developing their identities within this American setting. So... So I would say that's one thing is that, you know, we can do both. I think we can think both about our specific present situation and recognize some of these patterns of how we treat communities within the United States as they are, again, embodying their identity, creating their identity, becoming a part of this nation um, in their own way, each of them in their own way. And, and then... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was I was going to say... and. When you look back at the the history in this country of the uh, the fear of of Catholics, the fear of Catholicism, that is, as far as I can tell, no matter what your uh, opinion is of uh, th- this pope or any other recent pope, or your opinions of you know what what he did or didn't do when he met with Kim Davis and all of that nonsense that's going on, there is no more fear of Catholics. We don't fear they're going to take over the country, and yet. What you describe, Ben Railton, uh, goes back, you had mentioned uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's father and his book back in 1835. You also cited uh, New York Governor Al Smith's uh, 1928 campaign for the presidency, which you say was uh, affected, significantly affected, if not indeed derailed by anti-Catholic fears and accusations, including a note that was sent home with Florida schoolchildren reading, quote, if he is elected president, you will not be allowed to have a Bible. You will not be allowed to have or read a Bible, unquote. Man, does that sound familiar uh, to, to, to the language that we're hearing today. Uh, frankly, the language that we, we heard about Barack Obama. But I'm, I'm pointing that out because you're talking now about really, uh, you know, decades, a couple of hundred years of of fear of, of Catholics that is now seemingly gone, period, gone. And. Do we have this same kind of history in this country when it comes to Islam, or is that a relatively new fear that has happened uh, since 9-11? I would say a little bit of both. Um, there certainly are debates, even going back to the revolutionary era, um, in part because, as I mentioned in the piece, we also have a Muslim American communities going back to the revolutionary area. Mm-hmm. era, um, such as in South Carolina, where, where there was actually a sizable uh, Moroccan uh, called Moorish in the language of the time, but Muslim community in Charleston, South Carolina, um, as of the revolutionary moment. And so because of that presence, you do have some debate um, over particularly something like Article 6 in the Constitution, which is the spot that argues that there are, that makes clear that there will be no religious litmus test 
for office holding in this new United States. Mm -hmm. And when the Constitution is brought back for debate in the state legislatures for ratification in a couple different states, both South and North Carolina, that exact question is raised. Would that mean that people from, say, a Muslim community, or uh, Judaism is mentioned as well, could run for office? And it was raised by by legislators who were critiquing that idea, who were fearful of that idea. So they were were concerned about that test, and yet they allowed it to uh, to move forward anyway? Yeah, uh, to the credit of the the body of those legislatures, and especially those arguing for the Constitution, they responded and said, yes, it would mean that. It does mean that we are creating a state with not a state religion, with not a religious requirement. It was the first state in the world that had a Constitution that really did that, that did not require allegiance to a certain state religion in order to be part of it at that time. Um, and they argued for that and, and, and won that argument, or at least won the broad argument to get the Constitution ratified as it existed without without such clauses being changed or amended. So so fears like that, fears of religious others, um, do date back, I would argue, to the very beginning, and Muslim communities were one piece of those fears. But on the other hand, there's no question that we seem to operate in waves of, of which communities are the the subject of these kinds of, of xenophobic fears most directly. Mm-hmm. And there are reasons for those waves. There are factors, including, of course, events like September 11th. And so, yes, over these 15 years, these last 15 years, I would certainly say the Muslim community in America has become the centerpiece of many of those fears um, in a way that, that is certainly different than, than anything that had been the case for those communities previously, I, I would argue. And, and again, there are reasons and factors that are specific and real for that. But on the other hand, the way those narratives develop and how those fears get extended in so many ways and to so many American communities, I think does echo all of those earlier moments in ways that that we, it would be beneficial for us to try to learn from. Yeah, and uh, the reason I had mentioned the difference in the, the sort of the time period is that it this too gives me hope that if you can have decades, uh, if not centuries, of of the sort of ingrained fear of Catholicism into American lives and into American life, and then poof, it is gone in a moment, uh, seemingly uh, with the election of of, uh, of JFK. And now, you know, as I say, for somebody who was born after that election, I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine a time, you know, when there would be that kind of fear of Catholics, of all people. And, you know, so it even struck me somewhat a bit when I saw in 2012 as Mitt Romney was running and the fear of of, uh, of of Mormons, that that would be a thing. Uh, in, in another sense, we're watching Bernie Sanders run. He's now the front runner, arguably, in at least the first two uh, uh, primary states, Iowa and, and North uh, uh, New Hampshire, for the Democratic nomination. He's a Jewish person. And uh, growing up, I'm uh, Jewish. Growing up, I was told, oh, a, a Jewish person could never become president of the United States. And he's running... And his religion isn't even a part of this conversation. Now, I imagine it probably would be to a, a greater extent once, you know, if he actually is able to uh, to get the nomination. But it seems like a non-issue in 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 one regard, uh, much as it was largely a non-issue for uh, Romney and his Mormonism, much as the idea of a Catholic becoming a president is now a non-issue in that same regard. I think what you are suggesting, Ben, and I'm hoping you're right 
is that you see a time when we'll think about Muslims in that same way in this country. So how long ago, how long will that take <laughs> to, to get us to that point, Ben? Um, well, I think it depends on a couple things. I do see that. I do. I am ultimately an optimist, and I think it's a kind of optimism that I hope this piece reflects that I would call a kind of historically informed optimism rather than a, a blinder or more, I guess, naive optimism. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that in America we often can practice the latter forms, the forms of exceptional ideas of America that are not quite engaged with our histories. But I think if we engage, we still can be optimistic. And I think this would be an example, as you're citing, where we, we can learn from our history and also see how it allows room for for optimism, for a sense of possibility. Um, so I am that. I do I do believe that when I examine American history and identity, despite all the, the darknesses that are part of that. Um, but I do think there are factors that are in play. And honestly, I would say that that is one of them. It takes engagement. It takes an ability to to engage with our, our histories and identities in order to move forward more quickly. And so that well, after centuries of anti-Catholic sentiment, certainly something like his campaign and presidency provided that it provided an opportunity for Americans to shift their themes in a pretty collective way. And so I do think, I don't know who it would be. Um, you know, there's someone like Keith Ellison, who was the first, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, Muslim American congressman. Um, so I think it would take in part figures like that. It would take in part um, explicit examples and collective examples for Americans to be able to engage with rather than just these fears, these mm. these narratives, these hypotheticals. But, but at the same time, I also think it takes a broader awareness of, of history, like the presence of these Muslim communities for so many centuries in America, including so many of the slaves, mm -hmm. um, communities that came over, and again, a community like the one in Charleston and, and the Muslim communities in Detroit and other places throughout the 20th century. Um, and the more we can have that engagement, and that recognition of these long-standing American identities, then the harder it gets to see any community as simply foreign or other or controlled by foreign powers, um, which I think is also partly what happened with Catholics. The more and more we engage with American Catholicism and American Catholics rather than these ideas of strange, distant foreign powers. And so I think those things can happen, but I don't think they're inevitable. I, I guess that's part of that um, trying to be engaged optimism is not just believing it will happen necessarily, believing it can. And part of the reason it can is if we can have that engagement, that present engagement, that historical engagement, the conversation that results from that. So I believe it, but I don't think it's just going to happen naturally. I think we have to contribute to it for sure. Yeah, we do. And, uh, I, you know, I, but I, I think, I hope, I want to believe uh, that you're right. And I guess there is also, you know, other examples where we see, you know, for years, uh, can a uh, an African-American be president? Now it's not, obviously, now it's not even a question. Uh, eight years ago, there was a question, uh, is is the U.S. ready for a, uh, a female president, a woman as president? I haven't even heard that question asked. It was almost as if just going through the process, just running, even though she did not win the nomination or the presidency at that time, it's it almost sort of puts that question behind us now. I haven't even heard that come up in this campaign anymore. So I guess it just takes those kind of uh, those kind of moments uh, to begin the uh, sort of the normalization process. Uh, you write, uh, Ben, 2015 is not 1960. 
And there are, there are, as always, specific historical issues and factors with which we can and must engage. Yet our current anti-Muslim know-nothings will look just as extreme and silly to future historians as do those from the 1850s, 1920s, and the Kennedy campaign. I hope you're right. And uh, after a tough week, I'm going to uh, decide to agree with you, Ben. Uh, ben Relton, Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Fitchburg State, Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. Check out his work. Today's anti-Muslim sentiment is yesterday's fear of Catholics over at Talking Points Memo. Ben uh, Railton, great speaking with you, sir. It's great speaking with you, Brett. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Stay in touch. All right, we're going to take a quick break. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. Is that time again? Yeah, apparently it is. It is time for uh, our latest Green News Report. Hey, Desi Doyen. Hello. Welcome back. Um, you know it's a, uh, a tough week when the Green News Report is the happiest news of the day. Although, although I should say, that uh, conversation with Ben Railton, d- did that make you feel any better? Yeah, any more it encouraged? helped. It very interesting, and uh, I hope it happens soon, this switchover that he talked about. This, this too shall pass, as they say, maybe. I hope. In any event, uh, we will turn. We, we can certainly rely on today's Green News report for at least some good news for a change. Imagine that and our latest Green News report. You get in and you change every aspect of regulations. Jeb Bush calls for more oil and more gas in America's future. We need to move away from that dependency. Alberta, Canada, home of the dirty tar sands oil fields, foresees the phase out of fossil fuels. New air pollution standards for oil refineries. Plus, it's important to to show that any any type of car can go electric. Elon Musk and Tesla unveil the world's first all-electric SUV. I want me one. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Very exciting news. Because if NASA can find water on Mars, maybe one day they'll find it in California. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Joy, and all I want to talk about is Tesla's Model X SUV all-electric How do I get one? By making lots and lots and lots of money. Well, forget about that. I report on environmental news, (laughs) so never mind that. What else do you have for us today? Well, first, Republican presidential candidate Jeb Bush released his energy plan on Tuesday. It is filled with perennial Republican favorites. It focuses mostly on the oil and gas industry, calling for more drilling on public lands, lifting the U.S. ban on crude oil exports to send more U.S. oil overseas, exporting more U.S. natural gas and approving the Keystone XL pipeline. What? No filthy coal? No dangerous nukes? No, but he does want to kill EPA regulations and kill President Obama's new emissions standards for power plants. Of course he does. In his plan, there is no mention of renewable energy, a sector that is booming in the U.S., and no mention of climate change. And yet... Renewable energy is bringing thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs to this country, but 
Jeb Bush is not interested? Not at all. Go figure. That could impact Jeb's chances in the 2016 election. A new New York Times poll this week finds that a majority of conservative Republican voters now agree that climate change is real, it's man-made, and is a growing threat. But there's more. The poll also shows that nearly 70 percent of all voters support a carbon tax. That's making polluters pay for emissions. 54 percent of Republican voters Voters also support a carbon tax. Don't tell their candidates. Jeb Bush's energy plan also stands in contrast to Alberta, Canada, home of the massive tar sands oil development. In an interview with The Guardian newspaper, Alberta's newly elected premier, Rachel Notley, said she sees no long-term future for fossil fuels in Alberta. Their budget has been hit hard by the slump in oil prices. She told the CBC recently that Alberta needs to diversify its economy. We have had between 20 and 25 percent of our revenue dependent on royalties. So whether oil is at 20, whether oil pops back up to 60, we need to move away from that dependency. That's amazing. That's the premier of Alberta, the home of the Alberta tar sands oil fields, the dirty oil they want to send down through the Keystone XL pipeline saying... We need to get away from this entirely. Yes, she sees no fossil fuels in Alberta's future by 2100. That's amazing. Back in the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency is moving forward with new pollution standards. The EPA issued new rules this week to cut toxic air pollution releases from oil refineries. It affects 142 refineries nationwide. Until now, refineries only had to report summaries of their total annual toxic air emissions. The new rules now require refineries to install the first-ever monitoring equipment at their fence lines so that they can inform nearby communities immediately of any accidental releases during equipment malfunctions. Let the lawsuits begin. The EPA also introduced new rules to cut the amount of toxic pollution that power plants are allowed to discharge into the nation's waterways and drinking water supplies. It cuts how much toxic mercury, arsenic, lead, and other toxic metals that power plants can legally dump into your drinking water. Let the lawsuits continue. Finally, electric car company Tesla this week launched the world's first 100% electric SUV, the crossover Model X. While the $130,000 price tag is out of reach for pretty much everyone, the launch marks a bit of a turning point for automakers who all will introduce electric and hybrid models within the next four years. It's important to to show that uh, that any any type of car can go electric. Prior to the launch of the Model X, Tesla CEO Elon Musk said he thought that the Volkswagen emissions cheating scandal indicates that fossil fuels are on the way out. What the uh, Volkswagen is is really showing is that we've reached the limit of what's possible uh, with diesel and gasoline. Um, And so the time, I think, has come to move to a new generation of technology. Says the CEO of an electric car company. Yeah. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Not diesel, steam, or gasoline. Uh-huh. It's a great song by They Might Be Giants. <laughs> it is indeed, uh, and, it, and it's a great car by Elon Musk and Tesla. And I'm not just saying that because I want a free one. <laughs>
actually, yeah. Yeah, that is why I'm saying it. Uh, I do want a free one. Uh, and by, by the way, uh, that, that uh, verse of that song there uh, from Electric Car, not diesel steam or gasoline, because of obviously diesel, uh, the Volkswagen and uh, electric car for Model X, but steam, yes. We used to have uh, steam cars, and a couple of months ago, as we were driving around uh, somewhere near here in Hollywood, over in the valley, do you remember this, Des? Yes. We saw across the street, uh, we were at a, a, an intersection or something. At and a stoplight. A stoplight. And, and there was this car across the way that was belching out steam, and it was a Stanley steamer. And it was really super cool. Super old-fashioned. Old, super old, yeah. yeah. Uh, old, and, and then we looked closer. Guy was wearing it, had goggles on and everything. It was Jay Leno. Yes, the one and only. The one and only. Jay Leno driving around some afternoon in a Stanley steamer by himself, a steam engine car. Just tooling around. Can we get those again? That'll be low emissions, zero emissions, right? Other than water or the, the No, they have the to heat. have a fuel to yeah. heat the water to drive the steam. So uh, presumably that would, uh, that would not be emissions free like electric. Yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. Jay Leno is uh, being environmentally conscious, conscious, I guess, out in the valley with his Stanley Steamer. Anyway, my thanks uh, to you, Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to Ben Railton of Fitchburg State University. Uh, you should check out his article over at TPM Cafe. Today's anti-Muslim sentiment is yesterday's fear of Catholics. You can also find him, uh, follow him on the Twitters at American studier is that right yeah american studier all right uh we will see you uh soon i hope you will join us for our next thrilling episode until then uh my thanks to everyone you can if you missed any portion of today's show uh download it as always at bradblog.com or subscribe for free over on the itunes and while you're there Say something nice about us. It'll make it a little bit easier for uh, other people to find the Bradcast as well. Drop us email. We are bradcast at bradblog.com. And follow me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog. Also on Facebook, TheBradBlog. All right, that's it. Uh, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.